Our passage this morning is really all about freedom. It can be found in Romans chapter 7, verses 1 to 6. If you're using one of those black Bibles there in front of you, it's page 943. And the main point for this morning's sermon is that the Christian life is a life of true freedom. In this letter to the Roman Christians written by the Apostle Paul in the mid-50s A.D., uh, he wrote to the church explaining the truths of the gospel as well as its implication for our, all of our lives if we, if we are Christians. We have been looking at how the gospel of grace frees the Christian from the tyranny of sin, from the demands placed upon sinners through the law. Those are the two main things that we've been looking at. And then we see here that the Christian, though, is free from that law. There were demands placed upon people on account of the law. We had broken God's law. But the Christian life here is free from that law. We see that in 6, 14, and 15, where Christians are not under law, but he says they're under grace. Grace now is our master. We saw that the law condemns. But the grace of God in Jesus Christ is freeing. Having already brought up the fact that Christians are free from the law, Paul turns to look at how that, hap- how that happens. Right? He states that it is the truth. We are not under the law anymore, but we are under grace. Now, in our passage today, he explains how exactly the Christian has been released from the law. And the answer is that Christians live on account of Christ's death. I'll go ahead and read Romans chapter 7, verses 1 to 6. It says there, He's picking up this argument here about how it is that we are once again free from the law. He says there in verse 1, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she would be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man she is not an adulteress likewise my brothers you also have died to the law through the body of christ so that you may belong to another to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for god for while we were living in the flesh our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death but now we are released from the law having died to that which held us captive so that we may serve in the new way of the spirit and not in, the new, not in the old way of the written code. Do you notice there that verse 1 begins with a principle? And this is point number 1 if you're taking notes. The principle is the law reigns until death. He's explaining once again how the Christian is freed from the, the reign of the law, the reign of sin. He says there, point number 1, here's a principle, guys. The law reigns until death. The law reigns until a person dies. As long as we are uh, bound to this life, we are bound to the law. It's a very simple, basic, obvious principle in life, right? I mean, we all know this today. As long as you live in the United States of America, you are bound to the laws of the United States of America. As long as you live underneath your parents, if you're a child, you are bound to the laws that your parents have over you. It's a very obvious principle, and it was obvious to the readers who knew of the law of Moses. That is basically the first five books of the Old Testament that God had given Moses and Israel at a specific point in time. Verse number one, it says there, Or do you not know, brothers? This is supposed to be obvious to everybody who reads. 
Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? It's only for a specific period of time here. Here he's writing to the church. The church like, you know, the church then, like you guys, whether they are in Rome in the first century or us in the 21st century, Hacienda Heights, you know, we all know of the law. You might not know the specific terms called the Pentateuch, right, the first five books of the law, but yet you know something of it. We spend a lot lot of time preaching through the book of Genesis, a lot of times preaching through the book of Exodus, so you know of the law. And even visitors here today, if you're checking out Christianity, you too are gaining familiarity with the Old Testament, the law. That's the same thing that's going on here, right? They know the law, these brothers, the Christians there in Rome in the first century. But though we're talking about the law given to Moses in Israel <clears throat> ages ago, you guys realize that this here is a, is, a, is a question that we all, to some degree, should be having. The question really is, as, as, as uh, Paul is talking about these people who are familiar with the law, the question for us, too, we, we have some familiarity with the law, and the question we want to ask, too, is, well, what is my relationship to that law? That's really kind of the overarching question that Paul's addressing here. What is my, what is your, what's the Roman uh, Christian's relationship to the Old Testament? So here, friends, Romans is for you. And it helps us, it helps us understand what's our relationship to the Old Testament law. That's really what's, what's going on here. And Paul clearly says that it is, it is over someone. You are bound to it as long as a person lives. Or to put it another way, until somebody dies. But here we, in this discussion, you know, let's not forget that there are implications to being bound by the law. Right? We're talking about our relationship to the law. Well, the reason why he's bringing it up is because there are implications of having that law over us or being bound to the law or, more literally, having the law as Lord over us. So if you're not a Christian here, here the point is, is that the law is over you. You are bound to it. And there are implications. For one, the law brings condemnation and judgment. The law brings condemnation and judgment. In going against the law, right, we are shown to be lawbreakers. Really obvious. And this obviously presents a problem, as it says in Romans 2, 6, that God will render to each one according to his works. That is basically whether or not they're pleasing God or not, whether or not obeying the law or not. He's going to render to each one. He's going to judge each and every single one of us according to his works, right? That is bad news, bad news. But unless you think that you can stand up to the righteous requirements of the law of God, friends, you can't. You cannot. It is impossible, right? This is all bad news. So Romans 3.10, let's just review here. There is none righteous, no one who does good. Here's another one. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Right, that, they're talking about transgressing the law. They're talking about disobeying the law. And then in steps 319, now we know whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Why? So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. The law is over. It binds us to it as long as we live our whole entire lives. And then at some point in time, the law will speak against us finally and hold us to account. God himself will hold the whole entire world and every running mouth, self-righteous mouth, proud mouth, sinful mouth, will be stopped. 
So being under the law of God, right, there is accountability to God. There is the judgment of God. The law brings condemnation for sin, which ultimately, the Bible says, is eternal judgment in hell. Now, some of you guys might be saying, well, I'm glad I'm not that bad. I'm glad I'm not that bad. I obey the commands of God, generally speaking, right? I've never killed anybody. I know that, that law somewhere in the Old Testament. I don't commit adultery, for example, or at least that often. Well, guess what? He says there, you've got to look behind the specific letters to get to the heart behind the law. It's not ultimately about the commands, though those are really important. It's about the heart behind the commands. That is God's heart. So Jesus comes along, God come in the flesh, God the Son come in the flesh. And he says, look, you know, you are a murderer if you have hated even in your own heart. He comes along and he says, look, you are an adulterer if you have even lusted in your heart. So for you all, and I used to be like this, for you all who are so determined, determined to determine your own goodness and badness based on what you do outwardly, Jesus comes along and says, look, you want to know the true nature of a person? You look at the inward. You look at the root problem. Our outward sin is, in fact, bad. Without a shadow of a doubt, we are transgressing the law of God. We are going against God himself. But he says we need to look at the internal. And because we all have sin, even just one sin, James 2, verse 10 says that we are all lawbreakers. If you break one point, you break them all. You're held accountable, actually, to all of that. Why? Because you have sinned against the God behind the law. To break one commandment is to break all of them because you're going against the God of all of them. So what God wants you concerned about is whether you, God's created being, are living for Him, under Him, and in relationship to Him with the very life that He gave you. That's ultimately what we should be concerned about here as we look at what it means to be freed from the law. With all this talk about the law, it's really important to understand this, that God intended his created people to live for him, under him, and in relationship to him, and all in this relationship bound by love. Because if you don't understand that, if you don't understand what you've been made for, you will not understand God's law. Okay, so if you struggle with trying to maintain your own righteousness, you struggle with uh, maintaining, you know, your salvation by works, here, this here should be a bit of a rebuke to you. God had not designed you to keep the law. He had designed you to love God first and then also follow the law. You know, if you're new to the Bible, did you know that the law of God given to Israel, we're talking about the law of Moses, did not always exist? So some of you guys are just dying to keep the law, and that's how you attain righteousness. But did you know that God's law did not always exist? At least his law given to Moses, his law given to Israel. It existed at a certain point in time. God gave it to Moses at a certain point in time. It's interesting, isn't it? So, you know, do we want to live for something that God only intended for us to use for a period of time? I think the the answer is very clear. The answer is no. God gave the law to his people at a certain point in time in order to accomplish his purposes at that specific point in time. What was the purpose? One of the purposes for the law was to expose the people's sins for what it is. Expose the people's sins for what it is, what they are. At the time of the giving of the law, God was making his people into a nation to display his glory to the other nations. 
The problem, though, is that his people were very lawless. They were very lawless. You know, we, we know that God had created people. God had created man. Man had rebelled against him. They sinned against him. They went their own way. They were given to lawlessness. A couple of reasons why God gave the law was to bring about their knowledge of sin, Romans 3.20. It's to bring about a knowledge of sin. That's a purpose. And also warn them of the coming judgment, to warn them of their coming judgment. In 3.20 there, the law served as an, ex, as, it had an exposing purpose. It had also an informing purpose. And it also had a warning purpose. Through the law, it says there comes knowledge of sin. Through the law, comes knowledge of sin. How does this knowledge come about? If you look there, if you just skim from Romans 7, 7, 7, um, you'll see there, you know, just go ahead and skim there. It says, if I had not known, uh, if I had not, if it were not for the law, I would not have known sin. That's the exposing purpose, right? He comes to know sin because of the law. But then not only that, though, look at verse 13. Did that which is good then, he's talking about the law, then bring death to me? He says, no way, the law is still good. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So all of a sudden, not only does that exposing purpose, informing purpose, a warning purpose, it also has this intensifying purpose. It intensifies our sin as it shows us just how sinful we are. Now, you guys know this exposing purpose, right? You know that when the, when the, when the law is there, sometimes you actually want to break the law just to break the law. Uh, there was a period of time in my younger years where, uh, you know, I, I began trying to steal things. Uh, you know, I would steal cigarettes from uh, the grocery store. My children, I, don't, I don't think I've ever told you guys this story. I used to steal cigarettes from, from uh, the grocery store. I didn't even intend to smoke them. I just wanted to steal it. Augustine, church father, said the same thing. He was with some friends. They decided to steal some pears. The pears weren't his. Why did he steal it? Just because. He didn't even care about the pears. So when the law comes, some of you guys know, as you identify with this type of sin, you want to break the law just because you want to break the law. And that exposes your sin. It informs you that you are a sinner. And it also intensifies the sin because some of you guys want to give in more and more to it. You want to see just how, fa- just how far you can get uh, by escaping the law, escaping God. So here, sin or the law shows sin to be sin. Think of the law like a laser grid alarm system. You know, in our house, our kids got this laser alarm system, and they set up, you know, the laser thing and the receptor thing. And if you cross it, you know, it's alarm. It's a really obvious illustration here. You cross the laser... And the alarm goes off. But the law is not just one laser. Think of tons of laser, a whole grid of lasers. The big difference, though, is that the laser alarm system is designed to catch us. God's law, however, is designed to expose us to what he already knows. It's designed to expose us to what he already knows. The huge and important difference here. It's because that we want to draw out is because people today see God's law is coming from, you know, the big bad God, making sure that we don't get away with something that he doesn't know about. And that's how God maintains morality and the holiness of his people that he supposedly loves. Friends, if that's your idea of the law, that's completely wrong. God already knows all of our sins. He knows how sinful we are. And in our sin, because he knows everything, we're not getting away with anything. 
We're like Adam and Eve trying to hide underneath the omniscient God. God gives the law not so that we might get in trouble, but so that we would be aware of our trouble, so that we would be warned that the cost of going against God is the judgment of God himself. In God making us aware and warning us, his intention is that we would also turn to God who saves. This actually is another purpose of the law. So it not only exposes, it not only informs, it not only warns, the law actually bears witness to God's saving righteousness revealed in Jesus Christ. So go over and turn, turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. Here we're just looking at another purpose of the law and how it bears witness to God's saving righteousness revealed in Jesus Christ. It says there, but now, right, he already explained how we're all going to be judged, we're all going to be held accountable to God. He says, but now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets, what do they do? They bear witness to it. They bear witness to it. That is, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. When it says they're apart, it just means that you're not going to get God's righteousness by fulfilling the law. You can't. But when he says that the law and the prophets bear witness to it, he's saying, look, a purpose of it was to point us in that direction. Not only was it to imprison us, but it was also to show us the way of the Savior. This law hangs over a person's head until God judges one for breaking it. Romans 2, verse 12, it says, For all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Romans 6, 26, For the wages of sin is death. The Christian, however, is free from all of those things. Free from judgment. Free from condemnation. So if you are a Christian, friends, you have been freed from that law. You have been unbound from that law. Freed from condemnation that it brings. And the judgment that follows but not because you have died, but because Christ has died. Not because you have died, but because Christ has died. And Paul illustrates this principle in the, the principle that he gives us in verse 1. He illustrates in verses 2 and 3. Now, friends, as we are about to read this principle, um, know that it is not intended to be exact. It's not intended to be point for, a point-for-point point comparison of what follows. Paul is simply trying to illustrate the fact that death frees us from Law and its condemnation. Look there, verses 2 and 3. He says there, For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she would be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. This is a, it's a very obvious example, right? I mean, verses 2 and 3 are pretty clear on their own, but when you tie it back to 1, you might have some questions, right? You can tell that Paul makes a shift. Previously, Paul says, look, the law, we are bound to the law if a person is alive. You know, we would have went on to assume that he's going to say if she dies, then she's going to be free from the law. But he doesn't say that. He says when her husband dies, then she is free. But remember, right, Paul is going somewhere. He's going somewhere with his illustration. He's going to get to the death of Jesus Christ how it frees us from the law, and then marriage to Jesus Christ. Okay, so let me just summarize verses 2 and 3. It's really clear, you know, if a spouse is alive by law, the wife is married to her husband. They are joined by the law, by the covenant of marriage. But if the husband dies here, the wife is free to remarry. 
So on, on a side note here, you see Paul, he, you, we come to understand his understanding uh, of basically death and remarriage. It's not divorce and remarriage. He's not touching on that here, but he is talking about a death and remarriage. He says, look, if your husband dies, you're free to remarry. If your spouse dies, you're free to be, to be remarried. If a married woman has involvement with another man, she is judged to be an adulteress. See, that's a law there. Remember, the law judges, the law informs. But if she has involvement with another man while she's married, she is judged to be an adult, adulteress. Okay, so if you guys are getting confused with the illustration and stuff like that, do, do not think. If the law brings condemnation, so does marriage. No wonder I don't want to get married. Or I'm never getting married, right? That's a wrong way to understand what he's saying. The emphasis on the passage is on the releasing someone from the law. That's what he's getting at. Simple. And we know what he's going to say as he applies this to Christians, not in relation to marriage, but about how Christians have been freed from the law on account of Christ's death. Okay, so to recap, point number one, the law reigns until death. Point is made, verse one. Point is illustrated, verses two and three. Now, point two, Christians are free from the law through the death of Christ. Christians are free from the law and its condemnation through the death of Jesus Christ. Look there at verse 4. He says, likewise, my brothers, you also. He wants to give them hope here. He says, likewise, you also, guys, have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. He says that you have died to the law. But in the illustration, it's the husband that dies, right? Yeah, he's going to continue that. He says, through the body of Christ. To die to the law is to be freed from the law and its judgments. To die to the law is to be free from the law and its judgments, right? We were formerly bound to sin. Sin was our Lord and our master, but now we're free. We're free through the death of Christ. Now, as we read law... Remember, we have to read it in connection with sin here. Always read here in this section the connection between law and sin. So when, when Paul talks about freedom from law, read freedom from the penalty for breaking the law in our sin. That's what you should read there. Freedom from the penalty for breaking the law in our sin. But it's basically equated, the, basically in Paul's writing here, the phrase die to the law is equated with die to sin. Die to law, die to sin. Death to sin is necessarily also, one wrote, a death to the law's condemnation. And there's tons of parallels between the concept of freedom from sin, which is found in Romans chapter 6, and the concept, from freedom, the concept of freedom from the law found in Romans chapter 7. For example, write this down, you can compare, you can look later. Christians have, in fact, died to sin, Romans chapter 6, verse 2. And then in 7, 4, he says Christians have died to law. Another one, Christians have died to sin by union with Christ's death in 6.3. And then in 7.4, Christians have died to the law through the body of Christ. Christians have been justified and are free from sin in 6.7 and 18. And then in 7.6, he says, Christians have been released from the law. Christians share in Christ's resurrection, 6.4 and 5. And then in 7.4, Christians belong to him who was raised from the dead. Christians bear fruit that leads to holiness, 6.22. And then in 7.4, Christians are to bear fruit to God. So to summarize here, once again, to summarize, when Paul speaks about freedom from the law in Romans 7, he's talking about freedom from the penalty of, of breaking the law in our sin. 
As Paul is so careful to talk about the good news of Jesus here, that's what he's talking about, through the death of Christ. Notice how the law's demands are no more. Notice how freedom is achieved. The release from the law and its demands is achieved. If you're visiting with us and you know yourself not to be a Christian, this is super important here. Right? You may wonder, how exactly does that work? I understand logically that the claim is that if God's law is on us, as long as we live, as long as God's judgment hasn't called us to death yet, to be judged, that I'm still bound to the law. But how does the body of Christ free me from that? That's the question here that I hope that you're asking here. How does the body of Christ free me from the law's demands and death for sin? What Paul refers to here concerns the work of Jesus Christ as he died on the cross for sins through the body of Christ. Remember, God, remember God's law reigns over all of us and actually demands judgment for sin. Being a righteous God, He remains true. Of course, He remains true to His righteous self. He remains true to His justice. And what does God do? God sends His eternal Son to take the judgment in order to bear the weight of sin, to bear the punishment for sin for all who would repent of their sins and believe on Him. That's how we, as Christians, are released from the law because every demand for every broken law, for every child of God, is fulfilled in the death of Christ as God laid the punishment that was due us upon His eternal Son. If you look at Romans 8, 3, you see there, it says, By God, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin He condemned in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. See there that the righteous requirements were not thrown away, they were actually fulfilled in Jesus Christ by God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin He condemns in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Of course, God's Son and God's law don't work against each other. We should never think of, here's God's law, and then God's Son comes in to save the day and defeats God's law and God Himself. Like That wouldn't even make sense of the Trinity. The Trinity, every person of the Trinity is on the same mission. They are a unity. So here, do not think that God's Son and God's law work against each other. They actually work in accordance with each other. Remember that? The law and the prophets, they bear witness to the saving righteousness of God, the Son. The law was given to inform, alert, warn, and to point sinners to the Savior. Sin has been condemned in the crucifixion of His Son so that those who turn to God would not be. The law is done away with by the law being fulfilled. So for you, Christian, you are hidden in Christ Jesus. If you are with Christ, if you are in Christ, you are free from God's judgment for every sin that you had committed against every single one of His laws while you were at enmity against God, as Romans says. And you are hidden in Christ all by God's good design that we might be informed of our sin, that we might be exposed, and that we might seek, save, we might seek the Savior. All by God's good design that, that God Himself would want sinners to be hidden in His very own Son, and all because of His own love for us. Because of His love, He sends His Son to die on the cross for all once again who would turn away from their sin and back to their Maker to live for Him, under Him, and in relationship to Him. 
Again, non-Christian, if you're visiting with us today, the message for you is that you should turn from your sins and you will be forgiven. You will be, in fact, exonerated from all of your wrongdoing and declared righteous by the righteous God himself. You will be restored to your maker through the blood of Jesus Christ, all through the body of Christ. I mean, did you know that there in verses 2 and 3, you see there that for the married woman, if she were this lawbreaker, if she were to go and have a relationship with another man while she is married, she is determined to be an adulteress. She is an adulteress. If you are bound to the law, you are bound to the judgments of the law. But if you are in Christ, if you are hidden in Christ because of God's love, you are free. Previously, you were named all sorts of things. And that would have been right. But now in Christ, you are not named those things. You are named a child of God with the very spirit of Christ inside of you. Wonderful. It's a beautiful thing. And it calls you to turn from your sin. And you will no longer be associated with those judgments. Sure, Christians do struggle in an ongoing way in those things. And we come alongside one another point each other back to the gospel and help one another, but you are not identified and defined by what you were previously identified by. Praise the Lord for that, that sinners could be defined by the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is good news, friends. Christian, in Christ's death to sin, you have died to sin. In Christ fulfilling the demands of the law, the judgment of the law, the pronouncement of the law, the sentence held against you in Christ is torn so that you would be free. Of course, a note on this freedom here. This freedom is not a freedom to sin. Some of you come from that, those types of Christian backgrounds that, that have wrongly taught that if you are in Christ, you can just go on living in your sin. You don't have to repent of your sin. This is a wrong-headed understanding of Christian freedom. Christian freedom here does not give us a license to sin. That's what he's getting at in Romans chapter 6, right, and Romans chapter 7. We cannot live however we want to. That's not the freedom that's spoken of here. This is a concern, once again, that Paul addresses in our section as well as Romans 6. If we are not under law but under grace, shouldn't we go ahead and, and sin? He says, hey, look, are we, are we, if we're free, let's go ahead and do whatever we want to. The answer is no, certainly not. We are certainly not free to do whatever we want, only to go back and make sin our master. He is not talking about being free from God. That is exactly what got us into trouble in the first place, isn't it? That kind of freedom is one of the reasons that God had to give us his law to bring about the exposure, the information, and so that we might seek the Savior. The end of verse 4 clarifies what this freedom is. Look there. There in verse 4. What is the purpose of our dying to the law in the death of Christ? It is, look there, it is so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. The law and sin once reigned over us. They were masters over us. But now we belong to another, to Jesus Christ. It's like he's saying that we were at one point in time married to the law and its penalty for sin. But in the death of Jesus Christ, those who believe in Jesus are free. We're not bound to the law anymore. Instead, we are bound to Jesus Christ, the righteous one. You see this language of belonging here that should confront any of us who think, hey, we should use grace as a license to sin. You see this language of belonging. It is not the language that communicates, yay, I'm free to be separate from Jesus Christ. This language of belonging is language of union, language of marriage in the illustration. It's language of unity. It's a language of oneness, of true fellowship. We are either wed to the law and under the penalties for sin, or we are wed to Christ 
where we experience the freedom to live for Him, under Him, and in relationship to Him. But also, as our passage says, like Him, in Christ-likeness. This is the second purpose of our dying to the law and the death of Christ. The first was so that we would belong to Christ, the righteous one. But the second purpose, he says here, is to bear fruit for God. Right now, it's ultra clear that Christ does not free us from sin only for us to return back to it. In Christ, we are free to live as God has designed us as humans to truly live for him, under him, relationship to him. And in in Christ's likeness, bearing fruit for God. Christian, not only has God pardoned you from sin, He also enables you to live in this newness of life. Remember 617? We have become obedient from the heart, so now we can live, in Romans chapter 6, it says, alive to God in Jesus Christ. We share the benefits of Christ's death. Yes, we do. We also share the benefits of Christ's life. That's why the the emphasis here is on Him who was raised from the dead, because He lives in newness of life where he defeated sin and he defeated death itself. And as he raised, he is raised to newness of life. Well, friends, we share the benefits of Christ's death, so we share in the benefits of Christ's resurrection. And so we can live lives alive to God. These truths should produce in you, Christian, in you guys, an incredible, joyful freedom in pleasing God and in seeking to please him. It should cultivate an incredible, joyful freedom in pleasing God and in seeking to obey Him. And I hope that you all want to joy, uh, grow in this joyful freedom. And to that end, I have two points of application. The first is, to grow in joyful freedom, don't ever forget what it was like being enslaved to your old master, sin and law. Don't ever forget. Don't ever forget what that produced. Look there at Romans uh, chapter 7, verse 5. It says, For explanation, for while we were living in the flesh, that is, under the dominion of sin, where sin ruled us, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Remember how sin, uh, how the law exacerbates sin? It sort of stimulates it. Here he's talking, that's what he's talking, what he's talking about right here. Our sinful passions were aroused by the law. They were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Now again, he's going to get to the fact that the law is good. It's our sin that takes advantage of it. It's sin that co-ops its purposes. Um, it's good purposes. So here it says that it was at work in our members to bear fruit for death. You know, I, was ta- I was talking with uh, members after last week's sermon. And someone noted that it is amazing how forgetful we are. It's amazing how forgetful we are. We know how stupid sin is and what a despicable master sin makes. But we forget. We might have even gone through some really horrendous thing last week, some lesson that God had taught us last week about how despicable uh, sin is as a master, and yet this week we're doing the same exact thing. We are so forgetful. We forget that living in sin apart from Jesus Christ it bore the fruits of shame that led to death. But not only that, though, we forget the bad fruits brought about in our neighbors' lives that had affect us, right? We forget about the bad fruits that were in our parents' lives that, that uh, affected us too. And friends, these are all warning signs that God actually intends that we use to remember that that way is a bad way. 
that sin is a despicable master. We need to remember in society, we have so many different examples for you to remember that we live in a whole orchard of poison fruits. But in the gospel, we have the possibility of a new life, bearing fruit, eternal fruit, good fruit, unto righteousness, unto eternal salvation. So be on the lookout, friends. If all of these things are around us, then therefore it is upon us to be looking to see how is it that that pathway will lead to death. We have to remember the darkness of being under Lord sin, bearing fruit for death. It is a lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. Shame and the end of those things is death and judgment. For you Christians, I will help you steer clear from making sin your master again. You have been now released from the law, having died to that which held you captive at some point in time. So that purpose is we serve in the new way of the spirit, our verse says, and not in the old way of the written code or the old way of the letter. Here you have newness in the spirit, whereas previously you have the oldness of the letter that led to death. Second practical application point, if we want to grow in this joyful freedom, we have to remember that we've been freed for Christ. It is freed for Christ. So not only do we have to remember the stench of that old life that we have now been freed from, we have to remember that we have been freed to live for Jesus Christ. So if you, have, if you wrestle with uh, having this sort of joyful freedom in bearing fruit for God, maybe for you, you've separated pursuing holiness with pursuing Christ, the Holy One. Right? Maybe you have taken this task of, I need to produce works of holiness. I need to bear fruit for God. But you've separated that from the pursuit of Christ himself. Here in this passage, they're tied together. Right, To belong to Christ, to be married with him, is to go on and bear fruits for God's glory. To enter into the joy of Christ in living for Christ, we cannot forget that Christ is actually a real person. He is a real person that delights in his people doing what he wants them to. Now, I'm guessing that most of you guys understand what it's like to want to please a good boss, right? I recognize that not all bosses are good, and not all bosses nowadays are good all the time, but I'm sure you have some idea what it looks like to please a good boss who actually looks out for you, who actually wants to see you rise in the company or to be, you know, a good business person over the field of whatever it is that you do. Maybe you know what it's like to want to please your professors, for those of you who are in school. Professors who have your education in mind, and they want to see you groomed to become a, a very proficient professor and excel in your career. Maybe you know what it's like to want to please your parent, right? When you know that your good parent has your good in mind, and they're just wanting to protect you and see you flourish here in this world under God's rule, right? They may give you an assignment, They may charge you to finish the task and ask you to report back. And when we are thinking rightly and not selfishly, when we're thinking rightly, we want to please the boss. We want to please our parent. We want to please our professor. We'll write those 30 pages. It might be hard, but we're going to write those 30 pages, hand it in, and just wait. Can you give me feedback? How can I get better? Friends, that's what it's supposed to look like when you know God has your best interest in mind. You take the command. You take the charge. You, you go ahead and you, you work in his strength and you go and report back and you're eager to see what you can do better so that he might cultivate you for greater and greater fruit so that you might hear even as you humbly receive the feedback and encouragement, well done, good and faithful servant. I wonder if you think about producing good fruit for God. 
Is it tied to a love of Jesus Christ himself? Does that excite you to want to excel in the things of righteousness, the things of God, so that Christ's glory will be magnified in your very life and everybody else's life, so that you would live openly in front of other people and say, hey, you know what's changed me? Because you know me. You, you know, we go back 30 years. You know what I've been through. You know what's changed me? Hey, I'm not perfect. The Bible says I'm not perfect. The Bible says I'm growing in Jesus Christ, and my Lord is the Holy One, and He Himself is producing in me the holy fruits that lead to eternal life. Certainly don't earn eternal life, but they lead to ongoing sanctification and eternal life. Friends, do you live for God the person, Christ the person? Do you desire to live underneath Christ the person, the greatest authority of all who has your best interest in mind? And do you even want to live in relationship to Him where you hear from Him in His Word according to His Spirit and therefore want to live in His likeness and image Him to the rest of the world. That's what's in front of us, Christian. That should excite us. It's not about producing 8,000 bins of fruits. It's about entering in to the joy of Jesus Christ. And as I mentioned last week, the beauties of His holiness and being transformed into those very things. It's exciting to me. And friends, I hope it's exciting to you. We are, no doubt, to bear the fruits of holiness for Christ, for the glory of Christ. Thank God to accomplish that task, God actually equips us with the Spirit of Christ. We don't want to separate bearing holy fruits for Christ with loving our holy Christ. It is when we are growing in our love for Christ that we will want to please our Savior. We'll take joy in receiving His command, fulfilling His command by His grace, and delight in hearing His encouragement to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Friends, if you're you're wrestling with us, I encourage you to just continue reading Romans chapter 7 and then Romans chapter 8. He's going to talk about how God himself gives us the spirit of Christ so that we might know and determine the good things, the things that are godly, so that we might be led by the spirit of God and know that we are not just robots to produce these types of things, but we are actually sons of the living God as he's adopted us into our family and charged us to simply love him and live like him. To conclude, the Christian life is a life of true freedom. Certainly not freedom to do whatever we want, but freedom really to live as humans were designed to live, to live for the glory of God in Christ's likeness. Where once the judgment of sin was against us, now we who are in Christ have been released from the penalty demanded by the law, that is death, eternal death. Because Christ fulfilled the law on our behalf through the body of Christ who died on the cross for sins, we now stand adopted into God's family, released from the law. Now we serve a different master, that is the master of grace, receiving the blessings that come from both Christ's death to sin and the law and his resurrection to new life. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you for Jesus Christ. We praise you as we look back from Jesus Christ into time and eternity past that your salvation is this one salvation plan. And even the law, which sometimes we ourselves as Christians or even non-Christians here think is bad, is actually so incredibly good. 
We thank you, Lord, that you had your intentions in the law, not that we would be saved by following it, but so that we would know we cannot follow it, that we would know that there is none righteous, none who does good, and that we actually, being exposed, being informed, and being warned, would turn to the one Savior who can fulfill the law. We thank you, Lord, for your intentionality with what great intentionality you put into this one salvation plan that leads up to Christ being magnified, God, you being glorified through your Son, Jesus Christ, and us, your people, worshiping you into eternity. We thank you, Lord, that you, in your work on the cross, have shown yourself so much more powerful over sin and Satan, that you condemned sin in your flesh in order that we might belong to you Lord, where we might be confused to think that perhaps you do not love us, we pray, Lord, that you would point our hearts back to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that it is on account of your love for sinners that you sent your Son to die on the cross. Cause our hearts to be thankful and grateful for the marvelous work of salvation you've worked on our behalf, all according to your grace. In your name we pray, amen.